Welcome to the Red River Report, the news podcast powered by The Projector. I'm your host, Caitlin Gowerluck. I'm an editor-at-large at The Projector. And I am Danton Unger, also an editor-at-large at The Projector. So, Caitlin, what do we have going on today? Today? Well, this is actually the first podcast that we're recording after cannabis was legalized. So we have a couple different uh, stories that are focusing on that. We have one of our contributors, Alexis Brandt, who went to a cannabis conference that the college actually held a week or two ago. So she's going to talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh, And then you have an interview as well, sort of focused on a cannabis course, right? Yes. um, We have Rebecca Chartrand, who is the executive director of Indigenous Strategy. She's coming in to talk about uh, Red River College's first Cannabis 101 course. It's pretty interesting. There's some cool stuff happening there. Yeah, and we also have uh, another projector contributor, Luke Rempel, coming in to talk about the story behind the RRC logo. That was actually really interesting. Like, I hadn't, I didn't know about any of that until I read the story that Luke wrote. Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't want to give anything away (laughs) because Luke has the whole story. Yeah. And you guys can find that at the projector. At theprojector.ca. And Luke's story is called The Surprising Story Behind the Red River College Logo. Yes. There's actually a video as well that I thought was pretty funny. I really liked their video that Luke and David did. Yes. Do you think that you can identify the right Red River College logo? A lot of people at the college, it turns out, can't. No, not at all. It's a fun video. You guys can check it out. I found it entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and finally, who is our next guest? So we also have Connor Lloyd coming in from Red River College. He's one of their communications people there. Uh, and he is going to talk to us a little about what the college is doing differently after um, an attack on one of its instructors a few weeks ago near the Exchange District campus. So he's going to talk a little bit more about the college's Safe Walk program, uh, whether people are using it more, whether people feel safe on campus, especially downtown after the attack, um, and sort of where we're going from here after that happened. Very cool. Looking forward to it. Let's uh, jump right into it. Here we are with Luke Rempel. Hello. And Alexis Brandt. Hi. Welcome here. Thanks. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we are going to talk about some of the stories you guys have written in the past for The Projector, both of which were pretty interesting. Luke, why don't we start with you? Sure. Uh, well, I wrote a story about uh, the Red River College logo and pretty much its origin story. So, um, yeah, I'll just give you that and tell you what happened there. Yeah, There's give us the overview. The, um, basically... Uh, a student created the logo that we currently use for Red River College uh, 20 years ago. And this student just created it for a class assignment. And, you know, what's crazy about that is that normally if someone was to create a logo that was used for that, like, all over the place, like here at Red River College, it's imp- it's very difficult to go into any room where you can't see a Red River College logo anywhere. For example, on the back of that monitor right there. Uh, so it's it's they're all they're ubiquitous really, and if someone were to create that logo normally, they would be paid like thirty to fifty grand. Uh, but this guy was given a five hundred dollar honorarium, 
and um, that's insane. And okay, to put this in context, you also talked to the person who designed U of M's logo, right? I well, I talked to uh, a guy who, well, the the graphic design instructor at the time at Red River College, who had knowledge. He had been in touch with them, and they were U of M was doing a rebrand at the same time as Red River College. And theirs was, and their brand guide was all rumored to be paid like a hundred thousand to, uh, to Clark Communications at the time. So this guy got five hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and this Red River College logo, it's 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 pretty nice. And, and that's it. Like he never got anything else for it. He never got it. Well, I mean, you could argue that he, it leveraged. He even said it leveraged my career in a way. Right. So he he ended up like using that in portfolio, and now he's a design director at a marketing agency. So I mean, that's really great, but a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> is kind of nice too, you know. Hey, yeah. he also got some coverage in the projector. That's or... true. He got coverage in the projector twenty years later. Let's give yeah. him like, let's give him the proper coverage. What's his name? So uh, Rob needs Vicky. I'm not sure exactly if that's how it's pronounced. Well, but, uh, Rob. If you're listening, we like the logo. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, <laughs> we think it's worth more than five hundred, and but we're we're glad that you designed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another interesting part of the story is that he he was offered a job by the college, um, but he already had a job lined up. So like the job was to implement his logo after he graduated, and it ended up going to one of his friends, which is kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so this all happened in 1998, I believe, right? Yes. Do you know what program he was in at the time? Yes, he was in the graphic design program. Graphic design. Yeah. It was so. uh, digital communications management, I think it was called. Or wow. The It was a third year class. Now, you also did some research on what the logo means. Yeah, Right. that's true. That's pretty interesting. Before we jump into that, Alexis... Yes. Do you know what the logo means? No, I have no idea. Take a guess. We're talking about the, the okay. three little things wrapped well, in a ring. What do you think it means? Well, whenever I look at it, I, I think of um, um, those rock structures. I don't, what are they called? The, oh, come on. Like, like mountains? No, 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 no. Like those, like those um, man-made... Oh, looking at it now. Never mind. It looks like a hula hoop with a hula hoop? Uh, macaroni in the middle. Is that right, Luke? You know, that's a great answer, but it's not in the brand book. <laughs> oh, yeah. do Never tell mind. us. Um, we'll, we'll stop making Alexis sweat here and <laughs> give her the answer. <laughs> uh, so in the actual Red River College brand book, they list a ton of meanings for it. Uh, so one of those is uh, the joining of applied um, arts, science, and technology. That's what the three beams mean in the middle they also talk about it's a simplification of pages turning in a book and uh, that's what it's supposed to look like uh, it's also the red river the Assiniboine, and the Seine flowing together you know the three rivers that everyone always talks about the Seine. wow this no, is really know. intricate <laughs> uh and they list a bunch more meanings okay here's my question do you think that rob while he's sitting in his graphic design class was designing this logo saying, I think it's the three pillars of Red River College. I think it's the three rivers. I think it represents a book turning, and I think it represents unity of the college. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> uh, so a lot of this time, like I asked, I talked to the graphic design instructor, and he said, 
most of the time this kind of thing is rationalized after they get someone like like a creative communications person you know who comes in and says you know we could say it's this oh, we could say it's pages turning in a book can't you see it and uh, that's how these meanings come into the brand books so oh. there we go interesting it's a bit ingenuine i thought i i thought the designer would be thinking these things but yeah i mean it it works <laughs> it's Clearly. a lot of meanings though i was surprised uh, again, if you haven't already checked it out, go on to the Projector website and read <coughs> Luke's story. There's also a fun video that we talked about earlier. Check it out. It, it's pretty funny. Yeah, we pretty much just asked students uh, about uh, what they think the Red River College logo is, and they gave answers similar to Alexis. So, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Hula hooping macaroni. Hula hooping macaroni. Oh, just <laughs> They'll be so happy when they hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So, Alexis, you went to the college's cannabis conference, which was two days after legalization. Yes. Can you tell us was. a little bit more? None of us went to it. So tell us, like, when you got there, what was it like? So, well, I got there in the middle of a panel. That's pretty much what was going on all day. Panels of three or four. Um, the main, I think, person of this event being dr shelly turner um she was basically just talking about like all of the clinics that she's going to be opening up around manitoba and things like that and um just like like doctors entrepreneurs um there were a few people from the first nations that were um talking about it too um there was a lot of promo for the cannabis 101 course that Red River is doing. Yes, and we actually sat down with Rebecca Chartrand to talk a little more about that course. It's pretty interesting. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Dr. Uh, Shelley Turner was talking about that a lot, and um, it was really cool because at the end of all of their panels, um, they could or they were answering questions from people in the audience and anything that they wanted to know. Really, people were asking really anything. Like, I have it written down what a few of the questions. Oh, just talking about like how like people are concerned about the price and, you know, they want it to be easier to access or um, they want to know the laws of growing it and just all sorts of questions, really. And it was interesting seeing the different people that were there because like, you know, one guy, what's his name? Uh, Scott Cameron, he's the purchasing agent for Red River. He was there basically with a list. He had a paper and a list of things that he needs to know because, like, he's worried about, um, what was it, like a travel ban and stuff. Like, he, his name is going to be on these receipts. And so he was he was basically coming. He was concerned about that. Um, another kid, he wants to get into the business, but his mom just told him, like, hey, there's this car. <laughs> so he showed up, and then... And then, yeah, there was this woman, she's a mom of two, and she told me that the reason she's here is because she wants to learn about it so that she can teach her kids about it um, instead of, I guess, them learning on their own. Maybe they'll get misinformation, probably, you know how kids are. But So this conference, it took place at the Exchange District campus, and it was packed on the day of... Um, I forget exactly how many uh, Rebecca Chartrand did tell me. So it'll it'll be in the podcast. You'll find <laughs> out eventually. I just don't know right now. Uh, but 
there was a lot of people, like you said, from all sorts of businesses and stuff. Mm-hmm. From your point of view, what was the overall feel of this conference? Oh, it was all business, totally. Like, everybody was very serious, and they were there to learn, <laughs> and that's what that's what they did. Hmm. Yeah, I was surprised to see so many businessmen and things like that. Just all walks of life, really, but... Huh. So yeah. you, you said it was sort of just like panel discussions all day. Were there yes. certain topics that like really stood out to you or that you really like learned things through? Okay, so they, they covered a couple of different things like, um, where was it? Just like basic overall things that we need to know, that we, that we should know. And Dr. Turner um, talked a lot about, I guess, the stigma behind cannabis use and and she told some stories of her patients who went to other doctors and they were on like a list of medications. And then um, I guess Dr. Turner met with them and said, you know, why don't you try cannabis oil? And and um, it proved to be very effective. And that was really interesting hearing you know, like a doctor talking about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was only there for about an hour and a half listening, but... Um, yeah, Dr. Turner had a lot of really inf- interesting information that she was talking about. And, and again, everything's going to tie into this cannabis course too. So, yeah, that is interesting. There's, there's kind of a stigma around it still, even though it's legalized, I feel like there's still stigma around totally, yeah, yeah. marijuana and all of it. What do you think the role of these conferences play in that? Because there's, there's definitely something to be said there, I believe. Well, I, I think one of the main, I mean, I think one of the main takeaways that I got from this conference is, is like the medicinal use of it. And they were really just not pushing it, but just, you know, informing us about it, saying like, it's okay like, look at all of us. We all support it. We all, you know, smoke cannabis or things like that. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I think they're doing a good job already. And it's only been, at the time, two days. But um, I think they're really jumping on it. And they're trying to, trying to, I guess, give people a different perspective. Yeah. I'm going to put Luke on the spot here. As a, a student at Red River College, they have really jumped on to the legalization of cannabis. What do you feel as as a student at the school? You know, I think it makes sense um, that they want to get their guidelines like as strict as possible right away. They're they're really like as you can see in, even in the atrium today they had like the those posters and stuff. Like overall, I think they probably won't enforced it that strictly like I I mean there was one thing about like it cannot be in anyone's there cannot be on the premises of campus like um but I mean like I'm, I'm sure that like they can't search your bag or anything like it's they're not gonna have hounds like chasing you if someone <laughs> does bring that in so I think I think it comes off a lot stricter than it actually is the therapy uh, dogs are actually drug sniffing yeah. <laughs> dogs yeah it's a conspiracy <laughs> do you think that as we go along, those rules will relax then? Maybe years down the road. Yeah, because, I mean, even with alcohol, like, students 
smell like alcohol sometimes and that's really not I don't know like I hear I hear stories about people like drinking in class (laughs) but that's not on the school they still have a very strict policy against alcohol yeah I just I mean I've just never like seen them people getting in trouble for it you know it's just kind of like like whatever you're a mess kind of and I feel like that's might you know that might happen with marijuana fair fair. so just to pivot a little bit um alexis one of the things i thought was interesting was that the cannabis conference was actually hosted by the not the college itself but the college's school of indigenous education Mm -hmm. um so did they talk and even like uh, dr shelly turner who you've talked about on the podcast and you mentioned her in your article is from cross lake first nation which is treaty five territory right was there i i know you were only there for like an hour or two but was there sort of that specific focus on growing partnerships with uh, like different First Nations and Métis Nations? Yes, there was one, where is he? Oh, Chief Glenn Hudson. Um, I remember he he touched on it. Um, I, you know, I don't remember what was said exactly, but um, he did say, like, we'll talk about this later in the conference too. Um, there was talk of it, yeah, but um, I didn't take much away from what was said yeah i know uh in the interview with rebecca chartrand that uh will be right after this or sometime after this uh she does go into the relationship that uh the indigenous strategy has with this new innovation of the cannabis course and the role cannabis will play in red river college's future Uh, so we will get to hear a little more about that Cool. Yeah, it seems like we're like just at the very beginning of a lot of really interesting stuff. It is interesting, yeah. And I, uh, I just saw a story in the, the Winnipeg Free Press. I don't know if we can say that. I saw a story in the local news about uh, <laughs> the local paper of record. The local, yes, the local paper that the cannabis industry has already reached over five hundred people, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, and like it's directly employing 500 people? Directly, yeah. yeah. I read that too. That's yeah. wild. It is wild. And so it, in my mind, it makes sense. Red River College is a trades and technology school. So them jumping on a new industry like this, you know, doing conferences to teach business people and starting up new courses, I feel like that's a natural progression for the school. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I even, I even wrote down here... Um, somebody on the panel was saying, you know, we need to show students at Red River that this is a multi-million dollar industry and we need to support the students and let them know and create jobs and get students employed in the cannabis industry. Do you guys ever think, like, this is going to be history one day? Yes. I mean, like, <laughs> we're, we're sitting in... I, I graduated from high school not that long ago and I very clearly remember about Prohibition in like the 20s yep and how big of a thing it was when it ended and it was like just this massive thing and what if one day some future me is gonna be like wow how crazy is it that prohibition of marijuana ended in 2018 you were there i was there you did you did a podcast about it oh my goodness (laughs) gonna show my part of history show my future kids this podcast wow It'll be something. Wow. You guys, 
you guys are a piece of history. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Well, on that inspiring note, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't think so. We will move right on. As I said, we have the executive director of Indigenous Strategy, Rebecca Chartrand. I actually sat down with her uh, during the lunch hour of the Cannabis Conference uh, to talk about this new course. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Rebecca. So, Rebecca, the conference was today. What's the feedback been so far? Well, yes, we had our conference today, uh, the Cannabis uh, Legalization Conference held here at Red River College, uh, Princess Campus, and uh, we've been hearing nothing but great feedback from the people that have attended, and uh, we reached our capacity in terms of the numbers that we were shooting for. How many people are we talking here? Well, we received 140 registrations for the event. And of course, our uh, dining hall here at the Princess Campus holds that that number. And so we're doing really well. There's lots of great discussion happening between uh, participants that are here, as well as lots of learning and information sharing um, from the panelists. Specifically for this Cannabis 101 course, why is this something that the college wanted to start up? Well, considering we're a college that, you know, here in Manitoba, we're the largest college, we have over 200 programs and anywhere between, you know, 19,000 to 30,000 students on a yearly basis when we look at our full-time, part-time, as well as our continuing ed programs. So it's our job to create the workforce um, for the industries that we have here in Manitoba, as well as across the country. And um, with the legalization of cannabis, we want to ensure that, you know, we don't let the grass grow over on this, that we are, in fact, doing our part as a college to create that workforce and this is a multi-billion dollar industry that will it's evolving around us and that's what we heard today Um, there's entrepreneurs stepping up in in all industries from marketing to retail to looking at um, cultivation processing transportation and that is what we wanted to hear so today isn't about us sharing what we know but bringing some expert panelists together um, like people from the LGCA the liquor gaming and cannabis authority the some of the companies that are growing here bonafide grow force national access cannabis, one leaf. Um, so they're bringing a lot of information in terms of, you know, where we're go- growing. And we heard today that uh, NAC itself, National Access Cannabis, is in need of 700 new um, positions just to help them grow within the next year here. When I saw this course was coming to the uh, college, uh, it was very timely with the legalization. But I'm wondering, what is the future of the course? After a few years, once the uh, hype has kind of died down from this, Is this something the college will continue to offer? I think it definitely is an area that we need to continue to grow in terms of the courses and the programs that we offer. So right now, the Cannabis 101 is a standalone course. Um, So Cannabis 101 is going to uh, provide opportunity for people to get a foundation, foundational base of information to help them understand cannabis itself. So the plant, the plant anatomy, the functions of the plant, how it impacts you, um, the difference between recreational and medicinal, the difference between THC, CBD, and there's a wide continuum and spectrum there in terms of how it impacts the body. Um, the difference between, um, you know, inhaling as opposed to edibles, like there's all the science behind it. 
it that really needs to be understood so that people can have informed understandings about this plant, whether they decide to look at uh, using it recreational or med- uh, medically. Um, we also want to make sure that we're giving people enough information to understand where can people grow into this. You know, can they find jobs in transporting, currying, um, retail, um, right up to, you know, being their own entrepreneur. So the course is really touching on a broad spectrum of uh, areas to inform people. And it's it's useful for anybody who's um, interested in learning about cannabis. And I think um, because we've been under prohibition for generations, any of the information that we know is that, uh, you know, are the negative aspects of cannabis and the impacts. So I think we're at that stage now where we need to start doing research and, and sharing our understanding of cannabis. So the course is useful to anybody like doctors, um, even lawyers who are wanting to understand, you know, the um, federal, uh, provincial regulations. Parents, teachers, counselors, I think it's important to have age-appropriate conversations with students in our K-12 system. What do those conversations sound like? You know, what are the resources available? With that, there is a lot of apprehension around this, and I think that's what I had recognized in my conversations, uh, because I come from the K-12 system, and there wasn't really much material um, around informing um, young people or, you know, the general public around, you know, what this means and, and all of its impacts, and so I think that's where we're doing our part as a college is we're just really trying to help inform the discussion and today was really about bringing people together to start that dialogue. Now one of the things that was mentioned in the news release was that uh, this conference and this course uh, was about growing partnership with the First Nations and the Métis Nation. Could you elaborate on that a little more? Right. Um, when we look historically at um, First Nations and Métis development um, economically into this country, there has been uh, limitations placed on First Nations due to um, legislation that targets First Nations people, the Indian Act. And so those limitations have really um, segregated First Nations communities and isolated them to parcels of land that uh, weren't engaged in uh, mainstream society as it was growing. So Canada is a very young country. It's only about just over 150 years old because we just celebrated that milestone. Um, But at the same time, um, I don't believe that First Nations have been given equal opportunity. So this is a unique situation that we're in here in Manitoba because uh, six First Nations have been given retail license. So that means that gives them equal opportunity to grow into this industry and to grow in a way where they can start to look at uh, economic drivers in their communities, partnering with some of these bigger companies um, to ensure that, you know, we're growing together, we're working together hand in hand. And so I think that in itself is a milestone. And it really shows that the notion of reconciliation, that we're working together, and we're looking to create opportunities that benefit all communities and all peoples, whether you're First Nations or not. Okay. Uh, who's going to be teaching this course? Yes, we have uh, Dr. Shelley Turner, who's a medical doctor who specializes in medicinal cannabis. She has 4,000 patients that she's been serving over the last number of years. So she's well-versed in the impacts of cannabis as well as the different strains and, and how to treat different types of issues that people are dealing with, whether it's, you know, inflammation, pain reduction, or um 
dealing with some of the other more serious issues that uh, we heard people, patients talking about here today. So because uh, cannabis has been under prohibition, there hasn't been a whole lot of research um, to provide clinical studies that help us understand the impacts of this plant. And I think that's one of the more exciting areas. And that's really what she brings is just a passion for that, a passion for helping people who, you know, might be using opioids now um, to address the issues, the pain that they're dealing with. And so we know opioids is a huge crisis right across the country. And so I think the wealth of knowledge she brings, her professionalism, her credentials really add to our program as well, that our, our course that we're offering. Um, in addition to her speaking, we are going to have a number of subject matter experts also come in and talk about specific parts of the course. So she's going to be facilitating and leading uh, the discussion and the learning as well as the assessment of the course. But we're bringing in people like the LGCA, the Liquor Gaming Cannabis and Authority, to talk about federal, provincial regulations, as well as other doctors who can speak to some of these other areas like on plant anatomy. So this sounds like a very interactive course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the course is meant to um, start that dialogue, inform people so they can have informed decisions about their what they're doing or to help them make decisions about the areas where they're working. And so I had a lawyer contact me just last week asking me about the um, the course itself and whether, you know, we were going to be covering legislation uh, because lawyers need to know this stuff too because those some of those... Um, legislations are changing and you know in terms of trying to decriminalize what does that mean but we still have to know like where can people smoke can they grow you know like public property what does that mean does that mean 10 feet away from a building or you know um, does it mean you have to drive out to Birds Hill Park to smoke so there's lots of detailed information that I think uh, will be helpful to anybody who wants to really understand. Wonderful. Rebecca, is there anything else you'd like to add in here? Um, yeah, just share the information. Um, we'd love for you to, you know, participate in this course. Um, you can find the course online at uh, Red River College website, Cannabis 101. We do plan to grow um, other courses. Um, uh, the next course that we are looking at is a bud tenders course, which will, you know, p- give people the skills that uh, are necessary to work in a dispensary. And after that, um, I'm hoping that we continue to develop a smorgasbord of courses so that we don't pigeonhole people into taking a whole program that requires them to sit in class for a year or two years, but that they have opportunities to say, okay, oh, I, that bud tender ca- course looks great. I'm going to take that and I'll take the Cannabis 101. Maybe I'll take that course on um, cultivation next, you know, so that we're providing opportunity for people to learn, especially people who are already working full time and who um, may just need those extra courses to help, you know, them grow into the industry. Wonderful. Rebecca, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thanks for having me. On the evening of Tuesday, October 16th, there was an RRC instructor who was assaulted outside the former public safety building Mm -hmm. on William Avenue. Uh, He was going to catch the bus. Uh, And the instructor, he was stabbed and taken to hospital in critical condition. We have heard that he's been upgraded and is at home recovering Mm -hmm. now. Um, But in response to that incident, RRC President Paul Vogt put out a statement talking about uh, bolstered security precautions and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And so to talk a little more about that, we have uh, RSC's Director of College and Public Relations, Connor Lloyd. 
Well, you know, thanks, uh, thanks so much for being here, Dent. And it's uh, it's always fun to come back and uh, contribute again to the projector, a paper that when I was a student here, I wrote for regularly and was a columnist for. So it's uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come back to talk a little bit more about uh, what we've done, what we're continuing to do uh, in the interest of you know always enhancing and modifying the safety plan and protocols and procedures we have in place uh, for staff and students down at the Exchange District campus. Absolutely. Now. Jumping off of that, one of the uh, items in the statement from the president was uh, there were several immediate measures that were taken in response to this incident. Uh, one of them was a dedicated mobile street unit mm -hmm. that is operating from 4 to midnight in exchange district facilities, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. Their responsibility is they are operating from four till midnight in the exchange district campus area. And they're really there to do a couple of things. They're there to augment the safe walk program that is in effect 24 seven, that is uh, delivered by security services here. Uh, but in addition to that, they're also outside, they're in the community and they're looking at activity going on in and around our campuses as well. And if there's anything that, you know, that might happen that might look suspect or of concern, they're able to quickly liaise with both security at our campuses here to notify them of what's going on uh, but they're also working very closely and connecting with our other downtown partners so they'll work with police as available or as needed but they'll also work very very closely with uh, the exchange district biz who have their own foot patrols in the area uh, in addition to the downtown biz as well so they're there to really augment a lot of the work that's already being done and the uh, the monitoring and supervision of the sites too down here in the exchange district area. So how, how do we identify this mobile street unit? So right now they're using a Red River College van, and the van is deckled in the windows that identifies it as Red River College. It's driven by one of our guards. Uh, we're exploring some things to do to create more visibility on that vehicle. Initially right now, because we wanted to get the mobile street unit working and active literally within a day, uh, literally upon learning that the uh, the attack occurred on one of our instructors, um, we wanted to get it on the street and rolling. So they were out that evening already patrolling the area using an RRC van. So it's deckled. It's it's aware that it's a Red River College vehicle. I want to pivot a little bit and sure. talk more about <clears throat> specifically the Safe Walk program. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about number one, the history of the Safe Walk mm -hmm. program, how long it's been available for, mm -hmm. and over time, especially when something like this happens at the college. Do you see an increase or have you seen a decrease over time of students accessing it? Yeah, those are all really good questions. Uh, the first thing I, I'd point out is that a Safe Walk program is something that is very consistent uh, in post-secondary institutions across the country. Um, not just, it's not unique to Red River College and we didn't develop it out of identifying that there was necessarily a security need, but we wanted to develop it so that we ensured that uh, staff and students, faculty had access to a safe program that would get them at any time of day to whether the parking lot to the bus stop uh, in a lot of cases as well the safe walk program here uh, you know if you're going to a store you're going to a restaurant in the exchange district as an example to meet up with friends uh, and you don't want to walk alone they will escort you to wherever that restaurant might be and make sure that you get there safe and then they'll return uh, we also work the safe walk program downtown very closely in partnership with the exchange district biz so you know if there's a peak if it's a busier time we also work with them because they also operate their own safe walk program too so uh, safe walk is is really consistent and as a as a very common and adopted practice amongst post-secondary institutions uh, I it's too soon to say exactly if we've seen 
you know, a spike in numbers in use since the attack. But what I can tell you anecdotally is that, yes, our guards and our security department has certainly seen a pickup um, in people accessing it and using it on a regular basis, which, uh, you know, is good to see. It's good that people know how to access it and use it on a regular basis. Uh, some evenings the activity has doubled and in some cases tripled. Uh, but again, it's a little early to get into concrete numbers. They want to kind of take a look at it and compare over the course of a year if there's an increase or if it's remaining the same. But they've certainly noticed uh, over this last couple of weeks, an increased amount of users taking advantage of it. And, and we're really happy to see that people are using it and accessing it. So there's another resource on campus that students can access is the, the mobile safety app. That's right. Can yeah. you talk a little bit more about why the college felt that was a necessary step to take? Sure. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, another very good question. So uh, the mobile application that we use is another tool that's used by a lot of different post-secondary institutions. Uh, the University of Winnipeg uses the same one. Uh, Dalhousie University, BCIT, among a lot of other ones, have adopted this process and this practice. Um, what we like about it is that it is there to provide safety information and resources, but we also use it as a quick way uh, to notify staff and students in the event that there's a water main break downtown and we have to close the campus and, you know, people can't be here. Um, if there is a winter storm in one of our regional sites and we have to close it, in addition to providing very good information about police on campus, fire on campus, or if there's uh, an incident or a concern unfolding in and around the area to provide instructions in a very, very quick way. So we're just not relying on email um, or word of mouth to communicate that. So it's just one more layer that we've put into the system. Uh, we used to use a text alerting system, but it was limited based to only MTS carriers, and, and that's restrictive. The advantage of the app that we have is that it can be used by Blackberries, uh, iOS devices like iPhones or iPads. Uh, in addition to that, it can also be used on all Android devices. It's an app that's downloadable. Uh, people have to enable push notifications so that it goes directly to their phone and it will go to their phone whether their phone's in do not disturb or whether it is in you know a loud mode. Uh, so for example, we're in our interview right now and our phones are on silent. If there was an alert, it would push through and you know my watch would vibrate or you know I'd feel you know I would know that there's something coming through on my phone. Um, what it also really does and what's really helpful is that it also has resources to security at the push of a button. So, you know, if you're getting ready to leave and you want to access SafeWalk as an example, you can go in and instead of trying to find the number or fumble through your phone to look through your contacts, if you put security in your phone, you just open the app and then you tap onto SafeWalk and it gives you the phone numbers to access SafeWalk down in the Exchange District or at the Notre Dame campus as well. So it's kind of a multi-tool in that sense as, you know, in, in that sense to augment the way we communicate with staff and students on an ongoing basis at any one of our campuses in the province. And how long did you say the app's been available for? So we I rolled the app out, I want to say about three-ish years ago. Um, and now we've pretty much shifted to encouraging everybody to only use the app because, of course, um, we didn't want to restrict audiences. And, and now that, you know, MTS has been acquired by Bell, things have changed on the back end of the text alerting system. And there's a lot more flexibility and freedom with the mobile uh, app that we didn't have necessarily with text messages. So, um, and we're continuing to look and evolve and see what other practices and services and technology we can bring into play uh, to continue to augment what we're doing when it comes to communicating with staff and students on a variety of things, whether it be security related or whether it be just, you know, operational day-to-day -day related as well. 
And do you have an idea over those past, I think you said close to three years you've mm-hmm. had the app I, That's a rough estimate, three to four years in that window anyway. So over the past few years, do you have an idea of how many students proportionally use the app compared to how many students there are at Red River? So um, we can't really break it down granularly to know who is subscribing to the app because, of course, prefer privacy reasons. Um, we don't want to know who's logging onto it, like in the sense of we don't want to know that, you know, Caitlin is a subscriber and Danton is a subscriber. Uh, we can tell you that over the course of the campaign of encouraging people to subscribe to it and use it and download it. You know, right now we're seeing anywhere from about upwards of 3,000-ish subscribers, and that number ebbs and flows and varies, and we've seen a drastic increase in that as well. Uh, Not just since the attack, but because security has really increased their efforts to bring awareness to it. We've done a lot of more uh, communication internally about the benefits of using it. In the end, people have to choose to want it and take advantage of it. And we've been encouraging and providing, and it is free as well, and we ensure that it's, you know, available on all platforms. Uh, so, yeah, we're sitting at around, you know, about 3,000 users currently using that. Um, and it's a pretty healthy split between, you know, Android users or uh, iOS users. But it doesn't break down to let me know if it's a staff person who's a subscriber or if it's a student, you know. Uh, we'd like to see more people continue to download it and use it and take advantage of it. And um, and we're seeing that now. We're doing a lot more work in student orientation sessions to bring it to the awareness of students. Uh, in addition to that, we're also doing it at the new employee orientations when we hire new staff. We talk to them about the benefits of that as well. So uh, we're going to continue to do that kind of outreach around it as well to encourage people to take advantage of this service to stay informed and stay connected. So in the exchange and the downtown campuses, there's some... I would say unique uh, issues that can come up uh, being uh, college with staff and students, but also being a public facility. I mean, here at the Exchange District campus, the Roblin Center, uh, the atrium is public and open, and we have lots of people walking through. And there has been a few specific instances where uh, people have come in and they're either uh, under the influence or inebriated or seemingly so. And in one specific instance that I can recall, uh, one person became violent. Uh, so how does the college deal with this of having to protect their staff and students but also being a public facility. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, of course, you know, um, safety is always the first priority for at any one of our campuses uh, across the province. We want to ensure that there's good safety systems and protocols in place. And post-secondary institutions are a public institution, and we're very proud of the fact that we are a public institution that, you know, works very much closely in partnership with a lot of the downtown businesses, with a lot of the exchange district businesses, uh, so that we can be another great resource in the community by providing a lot of services that might not be available, you know, down the street. Uh, But because we are very proud of the fact that we're a a public institution and that we're open to the public, there are certain uh, protocols and and processes that we need to ensure are in place to monitor that type of behavior uh, and to also ensure that there's systems in place that when, like you Uh, you know, identify that there's an individual who came in who was very uh, aggravated and it got to a level of violence where they were throwing things around, if I recall, Um, that there's systems in place that not only engage the Winnipeg Police Service, but also take advantage of those partnerships with the Exchange District and the downtown biz. So when those situations occur, we always look at the safety plan, which is a living document, which we're always, you know, evolving, changing, updating based on, you know, past incidents, but also looking at best practices of what other post-secondary institutions are doing or based on advice 
advice we're receiving from our partners that we work really closely with. So because we're public, we do work very closely with the Winnipeg Police Service and they come down here very often and they buy coffee and they, st- they spend time here. And the same can be said with the downtown biz and with the exchange district biz who come through here. So in those instances, when something like that arises, we look at everything and we reevaluate everything and we determine what needs to be updated, changed, or what best practices exist out there uh, that we can use to continue to mitigate those types of instances. Um, to the point of trying to eliminate them. Now, one of the benefits is that we have 24-7 security. We have consistent staff who work here as well. Uh, They know the people in the area. They understand the dynamics of the area as well, and they have good relationships with police too. So when things like that occur, uh, they're able to connect with police as quickly as possible to try to de-escalate that situation. Uh, In a lot of cases, they recognize common people from the neighborhood who will come in. And in the winter, they come in to warm up for five to 10 minutes, and then they also escort them out. So there's, you know, been an enhanced, and a change level of, you know, patrols that security does all around the public areas as well and the private spaces too. And if we see things that are out of place, they either engage police as necessary or they escort them off the property if, it, if it's a, something that they can do safely uh, without antagonizing a situation further. So it's something that we're keenly aware of and that's why we have 24-7 security and, and that's why the police have been very good partners in coming through and doing regular patrols and stopping them for a coffee and parking their car and being available and present too. So you mentioned that you're kind of always looking at ways you can improve security on 100%. not just downtown, but on all the different campuses 100%. and rural areas and yes, everything. Of course. What are some areas where you've identified there are still gaps in the college's security plans? Where What's still missing from your safety plans? So, you know, that's a fair question. And I, I don't think when we talk about safety plans, we talk about what's missing or what gaps exist. We always look at, like I said previously, uh, we look at it and we're always constantly evolving it and updating it and looking at best practices. And we're looking at, you know, if something occurred at another post-secondary institution, we're connecting with them specifically in Manitoba as an example if something were to have occurred at the U of W our security area is connecting with them to talk about how they managed it what they've changed what they're doing differently and then we look at it and always compare it based on what we're doing and is it consistent with what we're doing or do we need to look at you know evolving those practices as well so a very good example would be uh, because we have more facilities in the downtown area. One of the immediate steps we took the other week as part of our safety plan was, in addition to having 24-7 security available, 24-7 safe walk program, uh, because we have faculty and students who are transiting from the A space at 321 McDermott, maybe they're transiting to the bus, maybe they're going over to PGI in the evening to get something from the Collex or they have a meeting, that we wanted to add a mobile street patrol unit. We saw that was something that we could add to further augment what we're doing and bolster the security in the area. So we're doing that. Uh, We're looking at other things now that include, you know, improved lighting, not both just around the campuses, but looking at neighborhood lighting as well. And we're working with the city and we're going to be discussing a litany of things with them uh, that we've seen as some good best practices that reduce, um, you know, reduce risk and also continue to enhance the safety that's ongoing. So is there anything missing? I don't know if it's about what's missing, but it's about what else can we evolve and change based on how neighborhoods change, how post-secondaries change the way they administer safety in their communities, uh, but also what are we hearing from staff and students. One of the things that we initially heard is that we want that they needed a mobile unit. That was one of the first things that came to our attention when we learned of the assault, and that was something that we implemented immediately. Uh, Lighting is something that we're working on right now, and we're going to continue to work towards improving not only the lighting around here, but we're going to be working with the city about more neighborhood lighting and things to that effect. 
you know, we're talking about the covered walkway and we're having discussions with the city now about what can we do to increase visibility on that walkway, but what else can be done, um, you know, to make it, you know, safer and improve lighting. And the Exchange District Biz has also been doing that. We've been working in partnership with them on what can we do as our role as a community partner as well to continue to keep the Exchange District as a safe place to work, live, and study. Uh, and how can we play a role in that with all the partners in the community too? Because of course, we're an important part of the Exchange District and uh, we made a big step to come down here 15 years ago and there's been a lot of success out of that so we work very closely with the business community as well when we learn of new best practices and how we evolve our safety plan so would you say the safety plan is reactive like it it seems like in this instance we had a uh, someone who was assaulted and then we see changes in security. And, that, and that's really consistent too when any type of attack or any type of event like this happens. You always go back and you always review. And, you know, we are very fortunate that, you know, incidents like these don't occur all that often in the exchange district. However, you know, regardless of when or how often or what the frequency, we take them very seriously. And and it's important that while the security plan is always evolving and changing, because of course we're making changes and updates to it that people never see or never hear about. And that's by design, you know, if we're up Upgrading cameras or installing new camera locations, we're not going to be out there publicly telling people where we've added cameras or, you know, where we're, we're making changes to patrols and things to that effect because we also don't want to, you know, impact the effectiveness of those changes too. So in this case, yes, this was a this was an immediate step that we felt we needed to take based on what we learned of the assault and what we learned happened. Uh, so they, they ebb and flow. They are always constantly changes. They're really, they're a living document, which never really stop. They're not static. We never write a security plan and go, all right, it's done. We'll take a look at it in about five to 10 years. It's something that, uh, you know, our security team are constantly reviewing because they're, they are looking at what other post-secondary institutions in the province are doing on a regular basis. They're looking at how they're managing their own incidences on campus. And they're also looking at a global perspective about what are the trends that we're seeing with respect to post-secondary security. So, you know, it ebbs and flows. There are certainly pieces that'll come out of it that may appear reactionary because based on an incident now we're, we're making a change, absolutely. But there are always processes and things that are happening in the background constantly uh, to keep it current, to keep it fresh, uh, to ensure that the right steps and the right technology is also being used uh, to provide a safe environment. Great. Um, just quickly before we uh, finish off the interview here, how can people... Uh get a hold of the mobile safety app that you were mentioning. So it's really easy uh, if you use a BlackBerry, which I think you'd be in the minority. Um, it's available through the BlackBerry World Store on the iOS. You know, go to the App Store. You just literally search mobile safety, Red River College, and it'll come up and you can download it uh, on your Android device. So through the Google Play Store, you search the same mobile safety with RRC, uh, with Red River College, and you can download it. Or you can go to the college's uh, safety and security site. So it's rrc.ca slash safety. And there are also links right on the website as well that you can, uh, that'll immediately push you to the appropriate store so that you can download it to your device. One thing that people need to remember to do when they download the app is to enable push notifications so that they get them on their device as well. Uh, And yeah, they should subscribe to it. And, you know, in the evenings or at any time of day, they should also take advantage of SafeWalk. It's a a free service that's available 24-7. And we really do encourage people to use it all the time especially if they feel they need to wonderful and those numbers for SafeWalk, we have them here at the exchange district campus it's 204-949-8305 at the uh, pgi it's 204-631-3381 and at the Notre dame campus it's 204-632-2323 perfect yeah 
So, Connor, is there anything else you'd like to add in here? No, you know, just uh, I appreciated the opportunity to come in today to talk a little bit more about some of the immediate steps we're taking. And, and like I said, um, our Safety and Health Services Department and our Security Department are also conducting an ongoing review uh, as a result of this assault. Uh, but there are going to continue to make changes and enhancements and improvements in the neighborhood as well. And we're going to continue to communicate that to ensure that uh, staff and students and faculty are fully aware of the additional steps that we're going to be taking to continue to enhance the environment down here uh, and to provide more resources and services to ensure that this place continues to be, which it has been a safe and uh, uh, good place to work and study. Great. Connor, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Director Sports Reporter Cassidy Dankochik. This past weekend marked the end of Red River's soccer season. While the men's team fell short of the playoffs, the women's team had a strong late push, able to make the playoffs in the final spot. They would match up against number one seed Brandon, and despite a strong showing, couldn't find a goal, losing one to nothing. Cassidy Dankochik here with Doug Laurie, just on the side of the field after their a bit of a heartbreaking one nothing loss uh, to Brandon University in the semifinals here. Uh, Coach, can you kind of take me through that game? Um, I think the girls played very well throughout the game. Um, we had a really good scoring chance in the first, early in the first half that, that might have, uh, you know, uh, put us on the front foot. Uh, but uh, the girls stuck with it. Uh, um, BU ended up getting the first goal. It was a very nice strike. Um, well hit, but the second half we came out and we created so many uh, or many really good scoring opportunities that just just uh, missed for us. So uh, you know it, it came down to a couple of inches here and there, and uh, you know it didn't work work out for us in the in the end. Uh, playing as a number four uh, against the number one seed, uh, well, were you you guys didn't seem to play like you were intimidated? Kind of take me through maybe uh, what was the message pregame. Well, first of all, uh, we tied them the both games we played them in league play. Um, so, so the message was that uh, being fourth, uh, this year the, the league was so balanced competitively. Every team could have made the playoffs with a bounce here or there throughout the season. And uh, all the games between all the teams are very close. So there was no, yeah, there was not, we weren't intimidated in any way at all. We knew they were a good team. Uh, they came first, uh, you know, by three points ahead of the second place team. They, so they were a good team. But uh, we knew we would compete well. And uh, we showed that in the second half. We carried a lot of the play and had, had you know, the best scoring chances. But uh, they just didn't go for us. You seem to really come out of the gate with a sense of urgency uh, where you and really seem to dominate that first 10 minutes uh, did it just kind of fade away did that initial adrenaline burst fade away or do you, what what do you think happened after that no I think uh, teams just settle into the game you know there's an energy burst at the beginning and excitement and uh, and we happen to get the uh, the opportunity early in the in the game um, but then I think teams settle into the game um, I, I know also that they had a star player that uh, a star defender for them that was not dressed today which uh, obviously would have uh, been a factor for them and uh, and affected them because uh, she, she's such a dominant uh, control player from the back for them so with her out of the lineup that hurt them a little bit but no the, the two teams settled into the game and um, uh, but you know, as I said, when we were down a goal going into the second half, the girls stepped up again and carried the play again in the second half and uh, and generated several really good scoring chances that just, just missed. I mean, looking, thinking back on all those chances in the second half, 
despite playing great, not getting a, not getting the goal? Is it just just the just on the wrong side of it, or is there something more that you think the team could have done? No, I don't think there was more the team could have done. They they put everything they had out there in the field, and they created the opportunities, uh, which is what we always hope to see is to create the opportunities. And um, you know, it's it's there's nothing more they could have done. They they gave their best effort on the chances to score, and uh, uh, like I said, they you know, inches the game of inches sometimes we hit a post. You know, we hit a post, a rocket off the post that uh, was the inside of the post. Could have gone posting in, it went posting out because uh, it was such a good shot. I, it, that's just the way it went for us today. Yeah, and on those chances, you guys may seem to have a little bit of trouble maybe hitting the net. <laughs> not, not much you can do, if, I guess, when you when that happens. No, yeah, they, they were close. They were, they're all good attempts at the net, and, um, and they, you know, the post uh, was, you know post and uh, and out the uh, you know uh, there were inches there were inches and uh, you seem to have a very calm demeanor demeanor when I was watching you on the bench you're, you're very very calm very stoic almost in front of that uh, is that what what take me through your uh, your sort of internal uh, thoughts when you're uh, when you're coaching out there during a game well you're always ho hoping for the best for the players on the field uh, um, you know that uh, that they create the magic that they that they're capable of doing every now and then, and uh, so you're hoping to see that, and uh, uh, hope that it works out well for them. And and of course, you know, urging them on every now and then, vocally from the sidelines, urging them on and uh, encouraging them. And uh, um, but uh, you know, at that point, uh, they're the ones on the field, and it's their game, so let them play and and see how things work out for them. When you think back on this team. Uh, what is there a word or something that comes to mind when, when you're going to think back on this team? Yeah, um, uh, there's a few actually. Uh, character, a lot of character on the team, a lot of grit because we had players playing hurt and we had, you know, uh, throughout the season actually. Um, tight chemistry, um, positivity. There's a, there's a lot of things to say about this team. It was a, it was a good team. And uh, you guys had a nice little late push to even make the playoffs uh i guess that goes back to that uh, character and grit that you were talking about yeah i mean uh you know i they made the playoffs this was the most competitive season ever in women's soccer in the mcac uh, all six teams could have made the playoffs uh with a bounce here or there through the season and and we qualified for the playoffs based on uh our body of work through the season and um uh, so they are they they're full value for for making the playoffs, um, and uh, you know and and they they worked hard to get there and they and they showed their their uh, their ability and their skill in this final game and and their grit in this final game as well. So uh, in this semifinal game, I should say. So uh, yeah, uh, full value for a, for a good season of of playing uh, of soccer. I guess looking forward now. You, you coach the futsal team as yes. well. Mm -hmm. So uh, are you? So I guess your focus now shifts a little bit more to the futsal. Yeah, at this point, I uh, confirm commitments for for futsal for the futsal season, which is in the winter term, and uh, we do a little bit of preseason at the end of November. So I've got those scheduled. But uh, right now, it's a matter of uh, talking to each of the players individually and confirming commitments. And there's a couple of uh, other new players that might join us um, starting their programs in winter or who, who are in the college now that uh, uh, that may be coming out for futsal as well. So, yeah.
So is it's are you, do you expect a similar roster to a lot of those returning players from the soccer team to futsal? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the majority of the futsal team is made up uh, from the soccer team. Um, with, like I said, every year there's usually a couple of additions. Um, uh, we do, uh, we are losing a few players. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one graduate, uh, one uh, a life team uh, moving. But um, so, uh, yeah, it's, the majority of the team is from the soccer team. Yeah. And so for, for somebody who might not be understand what futsal is, can you maybe give them a little bit of a breakdown of, uh, of, uh, of uh, that? I think this is a most whole people, new article. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, think, um, I, think most, I think most people are aware of soccer, but not, not yeah. as many people aware of uh, futsal. Yeah. Uh, futsal is, um, is the FIFA form of indoor soccer. Mm -hmm. um, so it's the one played internationally. Um, so uh, uh, unlike the form of indoor soccer that's commonly played in Manitoba. Uh, so it's uh, four players plus a goalie on a gym floor with a futsal ball, which is a modified uh, size four ball, uh, reduced bounce. And uh, some different rules uh, to keep the, the play uh, fast and uh, keep the flow of the game, uh, fast moving game. Uh, uh, ball skills are important uh, because of the tight quarter, tight uh, confines of the game. Uh, so it uh, demonstrates uh, uh, excellent ball skill, uh, a lot of opportunities at the net, uh, a lot of shooting opportunities uh, compared to outdoor. So uh, it's a very exciting game to watch and the players love playing it. I guess uh, I, maybe a bit more of a goalie gets involved a little bit more in futsal as well as yeah. compared to uh, regular soccer. Yeah, the the goal the goalkeeper uh, is is much more involved in futsal than uh, soccer, um, as far as uh, you know action around the net, but also uh, making plays up the floor and so on. Yeah. And so after a season. Do you go home? Do you relax? What what, what do you uh, what's on what's on your slate uh, in between seasons here? Well, we're not really too much between seasons. I mean, b between uh, soccer and futsal, there's not much time. Mm -hmm. So it's like I said, confirming my roster for futsal and just getting ready for futsal. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to add about uh, the upcoming futsal season, this game, the soccer season no, that I'll has just, been? I'll just add that I'm extremely proud of the of the soccer team for the work they did this year. Um, uh, how 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 quickly they became so close such a tight-knit team and uh, for the effort they put on the field throughout the year including this uh, semi-final game where they they really brought everything they had and and uh, can you uh, can you uh, give me the details behind Uda Uda or is or is that a, or is that a, or is that going to remain a team secret no 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 the <laughs> Uda Uda is an acronym for uh, it's part of a pre-game talk that uh, they gave them about situational awareness and it's an acronym for uh, observe, orient, decide, act. Yeah, and they were they've uh, they've been chanting that at a lot of the games that we've been yeah. to. Bit of a team rallying cry it turned into. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess uh those are good good advice, no matter what. Uh, so keep uh, keep Uda in in my. I'll keep Uda in my thoughts moving forward. All right, Thanks yeah. so much for doing this. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Sports coverage on the projector will shift now to basketball and volleyball. Their seasons getting underway this upcoming weekend. For continuing sports coverage, visit theprojector.ca.
So that is this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Caitlin Gowerlock, Editor-at-Large with The Projector. And I'm Danton Unger, another Editor-at-Large. Check out The Projector website and subscribe to the podcast. And follow us on social media at RRC Projector. Wonderful. Mm -hmm.